Welcome to the Love and War Worship Podcast. A conversation about Jesus and modern worship leadership. We know today's worship leaders want to be healthy leaders who are able to remain their best selves when life gets tough. Leadership can be hard sometimes. We know what it's like for the whole PA to go down during rehearsal or for half the band to be late on Easter Sunday morning, or even trying to lead after a fight with your spouse. In these moments, people in our lives become problems we're trying to solve, rather than people we can enjoy and relate to. Well, we've brought in some help. In today's episode, we talk to author Marcus Warner about what both brain science and scripture tell us about healthy relationships, and how joy is a key to becoming a healthy person and leader. That's what today's episode is all about. Dude, why do we get to hang with these brilliant people all the time and learn from them in this interview season? I'm just trying to hang on to people's coattails on this stuff, man. It's so fun, and I feel so privileged, honestly, to have been in conversation with some of these people, man. Well, what's coming up, man? Dude, we got a learning community coming up. We do. That's for sure. I mean, in every episode, we're talking about this, and we're talking about it for a reason, Mm because we think it's one of the most powerful tools we offer. What's your favorite thing about these learning communities like what what would you say to people like this is the reason why this is the reason why it's worth it's worth making the trip to kansas city to do this it's time we get with the pastors in our lives some of the spiritual fathers in our world get to come in and teach us and pastor us and speak identity over them Mm. that maybe that hasn't happened in their life or if it has it probably hasn't happened enough right and i i see lives transformed and my life has been rocked by these moments with these pastors Go to loveandwarworship.org and you can request an invitation for the learning community. Okay, so I love this conversation that we're going to have mm-hmm. today, man. This is a conversation that's become pretty much ground zero to us. And we're talking to a man, Marcus Warner, who has really become pretty influential in what's happening in our lives. Marcus is the president of Deeper Walk International. He's a leader in the Joy Starts Here movement, and he's also written a book that has been really, really powerful in our lives called Rare Leadership. So we're going to talk to him about some of the stuff that's in that book. But the stuff that really trips us out is this space that he works in, brain science and theology actually called neurotheology. Best combo ever. Yeah, totally. Where they're examining the way that our brain works on God, pretty much. And it's a really fascinating conversation. So you do a really great job of walking people through the way that our right side works with our left side. So, I'm, man, let us have it, dude. Like, give us, give us the okay. breakdown <laughs> of neurotheology the way that our brain works in the most simple terms. Okay, so here's the 30-second version of brain science. Brain science for dummies. Boom. There's two halves, hemispheres, if you will, of your brain, right and left. Okay, so your left side of the brain, that's the information storehouse, your analytical problem-solving brain. We need that. That's good. Then the right side of your brain, that's the relational side of your brain where you get to relate and know when you're glad to be with someone. And we need both of those parts of our brains to be lit up and functioning, to have healthy relationships, both with each other and with God. And this is what's become a very powerful realization Mm -hmm. for us, is that joy 
is this currency that we actually hatch into life with? Yeah. I see it in my daughter every single day. Today, literally this morning, she woke up and she bounced up and down in her crib. (laughs) And when my wife went and got her, I heard her squeal. And that is joy. Joy (laughs) is this currency that we hatch into life with that is just expecting Mm. that the people that we are with are glad to be with us. And we express, I'm glad to be with you too. You know, the joy of the Lord, that's the thing, Mm. like the joy of God, God's joy towards us is that we're in relationship with Him. Everything about the New Testament tells us that. He gave uh, gave His Son on our behalf so that we could be in relationship with us. God is glad to be with us, right? Well, let's just kind of chat through a couple of things that we want our listeners to be really looking for in this episode. Marcus, again, he defines joy as the emotional currency God has given us to help us become our best selves. And that's in quotes. There's this term that he uses throughout this episode called our best selves. He defines joy as the sparkle in a person's eye when they are glad to be with someone and when that person is glad to be with them. Yeah, Marcus tells us that there are six big negative emotions, shame, anger, disgust, sadness, anxiety, or fear, and despair. And these emotions can be like a powder keg in us. When they're triggered, we just explode. Man, I'm very, you know, familiar with the reality of those things. Well, we ask why those emotions get triggered in us so much. And Marcus helps us discover how we can remain our best selves when we get triggered. And he explains why sustainable movements are led by healthy leaders. Yeah, and in the end, Marcus tells us that leadership comes down to how we treat weakness, beginning with how we treat our own weakness. And he encourages us to be tender toward our own weakness. Might be one of my favorite points of the entire season. Yeah. Probably the thing that keeps rolling around in my my heart and my mind more than any other thing these days. I'm so thankful for that reminder. All right. Well, listen, you guys, we are so stoked to bring you this interview with our very good friend and guide, Marcus Warner. We hope you love it. All right. Well, tell me, tell me about brain science. I'm not sure that all of the people that will be listening to this are really up to speed on how... Uh, advanced this science has become sure, and the derivatives, like the things that we're really being able to draw from, you know, brain science that really help make sense of life, really. It's just the difference between right brain and left brain. One of the things they found out is that there is sort of like an on-off switch on the right brain. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when that switch is on, my relational brain circuits are on and functioning. I can be relationally engaged with you. When those, uh, when those circuits shut down, I stop being relational. When I stop being relational, I'm no longer curious about you. I don't really appreciate anything about you. I kind of just want you to go away. On the left brain is the analytical, problem-solving, conscious thought part of our brain. And it operates after our right brain is engaged, it begins to operate, and it operates slightly slower than our right brain. So when my joy goes away, everything becomes a problem to be solved. Hmm. Say more about that. Like, like what, 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 give us a, a street level example of what that might be like. So, you know, in my uh, marriage, right, mm-hmm. the, uh, there are times when um, I've found that I have trouble with criticism uh, will create shame and shame will make me shut down. And when that happens, my right brain shuts down. I go over to my left brain. And now instead of my wife being a person to relate to and have joy with, my, prob- my wife becomes a problem to be solved. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. And so as soon as that happens, I treat her, I turn into a different person Mm -hmm. and I treat her differently than I would. I lose all curiosity about how she's thinking and feeling. I lose my sense of appreciation for her being there. And I kind of just want her to go away Mm -hmm. (laughs) or I want to disappear. And I lose my relational engagement. And in that process, I, I turn into a different person. I don't act like myself. Joy is like the sparkle you get in your eye when you see somebody that you like and you're like, oh, it's you. That's joy. Best understood as a right brain experience that is happening when I sync with somebody else and I'm happy to be with them. One of the brain science things that has been discovered is that joy is the key to mental emotional health. And it is the key to overcoming addiction. It's the key to forming healthy attachments. It's the key to emotional capacity. It's the key to all kinds of things. I will say one other thing about joy is that the most common misconception I run into is that joy is just feeling good. And so everybody's excited about this. So tell me the strategy of how when I feel bad, I can feel good quickly. And that's not actually what we're talking about when we talk about joy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that you never feel shame or you never get angry or you're never scared or you're never depressed. But you don't turn into a different person when those things happen. Mm -hmm. You're able to stay relational and act like yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about returning to joy, it's not just a matter of managing our emotions so that we feel better. But it's like, if you do something that makes me upset with you, do I have the capacity to stay relational with you and act like myself when I'm upset with you? Yeah. Or do you, you know, whatever it is that makes me upset with you cause me to shut down and say, hey, that's it. Our relationship is over. I've got to go disappear for a while and I just hope you do the same, right? And so that's that's a very non-relational, very immature way of handling our, our, our upsetness. I I wasn't my best self this morning. I literally had to apologize to my wife on the way here because things got stressful trying to get the kids out the door to school. She yelled something up the steps. I yelled something back (laughs) now. She got back home. I was like, babe, I'm sorry. And it was like, I'm going to interview Marcus Warner today. (laughs) Fortunately, I'm way past that. That never happens to me anymore. So I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was it was one of those no, moments where I was like, oh my gosh, man, I just completely lost my best self. So talk to me about the best self. Well, being my best self basically means that I, um, for example, when uh, your wife yells up something and you yell back, what tends to happen is instead of attuning into to her, like, I, I'm curious about what's causing her to feel this way what's going on, validating her emotion, you know, and right. uh, connect and, and tune and attuning. We spend a lot of time apologizing. Okay. Right. I do too. It's like you spend a lot of time saying, I'm sorry, I you did not handle that well. I should have handled that this way. And I can see why your feelings got hurt. And, uh, you know, what can we do to make our relationship bigger than the problem? Yeah. So that's a phrase that my wife and I have started using quite a bit. And that is, how can we make the relationship bigger than the problem? You guys talk a lot about the big negative emotions, the big six sure. negative emotions. Yeah, I use sad, sad. I use sad, sad to, to uh, help me remember what the big six negative emotions are. So uh-huh. you can think of it like an acrostic, sad, sad. So it's shame, anger, disgust, sadness, anxiety, despair. 
No, anxiety technically should be fear. So the big six. The big six. The big six, those are like alarms that go off, yes. right? And so it's driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, boom, boom anger, right. you know, or... I get triggered. They come out because I'm triggered. So the analogy I use is I got a powder keg down inside. I got buttons that are connected to the powder keg. And as long as nobody pushes my buttons, I'm fine. Right. But that's not life. Yeah. Right. So when life pushes so when the button life, and the powder keg goes off. Right. We're not our best self. We're not our best self. And so what keeps us from being our best self is when I I am my shame self or I am my fear self or I am my angry self. And sometimes that happens so often that we begin to define ourselves by it. Right. Right. I'm just an angry person. Yeah. I'm just a depressed person. It's just the way I am. You better just get used to it. And actually, that's me malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. That's not me being my best self. That is saying that I haven't learned how to stay relational. And We call like those myself. agreements. Okay, agreements. We call yes. those agreements. Like we make an agreement with something that's actually not what the kingdom of God would have for you. You know, you make a, I think you use the word vow. Mm -hmm. You know, you make a, a vow. I will always be this way. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And agreements have very powerful spiritual warfare implications. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. essentially we're shaking hands with the devil and saying you're right and God's wrong. Yeah. Right. So when the when the powder keg is going off, they have enough going on inside, enough right. health that they can remain. Yeah. So there's two things there. <laughs> One is is having the emotional capacity to uh, be able to stay yourself through the triggering. Mm -hmm. And the other one is to be actively working on the issues that caused the triggering in the first place. In other words, why does shame trigger you so much? Great question. Okay. So the reason shame triggers you so much generally goes back to childhood experiences and things like that where nobody was happy to be with you when you felt shame. By healing those things, I get less triggered and so I have more capacity. Mm -hmm. And by growing more joyful relationships in my life, I grow capacity. So I want to be working at both ends of the of the scale, so to speak. And that is, I want to be growing joy, joyful relationships on the top end of the scale, and I want to be demining the, uh, the, the number of landmines down below uh, from my past by working on emotional healing issues. Both of those things together help to give me more emotional capacity so that I can act like myself yeah, even right. when I get triggered. The reason why this work that you have done is so important to us is because you have said that sustainable movements are led by healthy leaders. And I'm really intrigued by the idea of people in spiritual families. I think that the best billboard that we have in America for the kingdom of God right now are healthy families, families, spiritual families that work correctly, that work their stuff out and love each other well. And this work is important because it's maturing and growing people to relate to one another in a in a healthy in a healthy way. Can you tell us about this idea that sustainable movements are led by healthy people? Yeah, sure. The uh it's what you find is that if you're not a healthy person, nothing you do is sustainable. Healthy people find what there is to enjoy in what they're doing. And they, uh, they find a rhythm to life. And this rhythm has to do with there's a time to engage and there's a time to disengage. 
And, uh, yeah. and with, I, when I'm with my people, I don't have to wear a mask. I can just be myself. I can bring all of my brokenness, all of my emotions, and uh, they're going to be happy to see me. They may that's not be able would, to fix me, but they're going to be happy yeah, to see me. That's what we would call a spiritual family right there. Right. Yeah. That, that's the, but if, if I'm not afraid to feel shame because I know that I can feel shame and come back and be with people who are happy to be with me, mm-hmm. I'm less afraid of experiencing shame. If, I'm, uh, if uh, I know that I can feel fear or anger and I can still come back with, uh, to my people and they're going to be happy to see me and they're going to help me return to, to a state of joy and a state of peace. I don't have to be afraid of those emotions. And if I'm not afraid of those emotions, life becomes an adventure to be lived. I can go out there and I can try all kinds of things and not be afraid of the emotion that's going to make me feel. And I become more adventurous. I become more bold. I become uh, more willing to take risks. And a lot of that grows out of the fact that I know my people are with me and I'm not alone in anything that I do. And that's the power of spiritual family. It's the power of, of, of true belonging. Because there's a difference between connecting and belonging. Connecting means, you know, my name's on the membership rolls. I'm a part of what's going on. You know, I show up and I'm an attendee. Yeah. Belonging means these are my people. Wow. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. And it's one, helpful. We use the word connect a lot. And I, I think belong is a, is a better word. It's a better, better paradigm for sure. And I think that's one of the, been the biggest challenges in the small group movement across the country is there's a lot of people who are connected but don't belong. probably about a month and a half a month and a half ago I just started to ask myself this question it was because of the influence of of your writing and I started to just turn over some rocks in my soul you know and uh, one of those questions was do I feel like I am liked on the surface like well yeah I mean I'm, there's there's people everywhere you know and people are like applauding and all that stuff. I was like but no man in my soul do I do, when I'm in a room do I feel safe like do I feel like the people that I'm with are happy to be with me regardless of what I'm exporting on Sunday or whether or not the event was great or whether or not the song was awesome or right. the worship set was good or whatever. Just my personhood. And I think a lot of times as sometimes as a provocative leader, we get pushed back and there starts to be this narrative of like, man, you're just you're just, and I'm, I'm kind of talking about my own stuff okay. here a little bit, you know, but I'm wondering, I'm, I would assume that that would, that would really resonate with other people out there. What do we do? What do we do if we're yeah. like, man, I'm feeling actually, cause I don't think it's uncommon in ministry to just feel loneliness, you know? Right. It is very true. There's a couple of reasons for that. I found one of them is it's a natural plight of performers. Yeah. Well, here we go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that is when I, <laughs> because part of my job is getting up on stage and trying to make what I do interesting. Right. If I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not just up there disseminating brain science and theology, I'm trying to make it interesting and relevant. And so there's a sense in which, you know, if I do a good job of that, people will like me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And so after a while, you realize, well, they like what I do, but they like me. Do they like I, who I am? Who I am. There's on, so there's this disconnect. And, it, and that comes with, Anytime that I have to wear a mask, because what happens is if I wear a mask, it instinctively is there to make myself look stronger to other people. And it works. It's mm-hmm. the problem. People are attracted to the mask. And therefore, um, I get to a point where I'm not sure if they like me or they like my mask. Yeah. And so the only way to do that, to deal with that, is you've got to become transparent and vulnerable. You've got to be willing to take off the mask and let people see who you are. The challenge here is I look at Jesus because... 
Jesus was incredibly vulnerable and not at the same time because Jesus was surrounded by predators who wanted to kill him. So how can you be vulnerable and make yourself weak and vulnerable when you're constantly surrounded by people who want to kill you? So Jesus becomes this really interesting model of what it looks like to live with vulnerability and and openness. One of the things we found was he was careful who he did it with. So when he was with the Pharisees, he wasn't like, you know, bearing his soul and opening up things because they were after him. Right. And so what he did with them is he tended to talk in riddles. Yeah, he did. Yep. (laughs) And he would say some very poignant things, but they couldn't directly accuse him of coming after, you know, it was like. That's brilliant. And even with his disciples, he couldn't fully trust them because they weren't mature enough to deal with what he was going through. Mm -hmm. So he had to have get a lot of this just from his walk with his father mm-hmm. and constantly seeing himself through his father's eyes saying, okay, father saying, no, you're doing exactly what I want. This is why you're here. This is why you have the anointing. This is what I sent you to do. Cause everywhere he looked, you talk about being isolated potentially of nobody getting you. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, who could really fully relate to what he was going through. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, he had the disciples who really didn't get it. On the other hand, he had the Pharisees and religious leaders who were after him. And then he had the Romans who just, you know, saw him as a nuisance and something to control. And But Jesus found ways to extend and build relationship with all of these people and uh, create belonging around him. And I think that the key, what tends to happen in, in ministry is something we call kingmaking. But kingmaking basically happens when the community around looks at somebody like you or me and they say, oh, you're so talented. You do this so well. God has clearly called you. He's clearly anointed you. You just take it and run with it. You just do it. We'll sit here and applaud. Right. And say, you go, man, you go, right? Yep. And uh, after a certain point, I say, well, okay, I'll take that. I'll accept that. And when I accept that, I'm saying, Yeah, okay, you just keep giving me applause, you just keep giving me uh, affirmation, and I'll keep, you know, working myself to death and making this happen. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that's a recipe for isolation because now I have no peers. I find myself increasingly isolated because as I look around, I've got a lot of fans, but I don't have any friends. Oh, man. Right? There's nobody who knows me because I haven't let anybody in because I accepted the deal to be king. So what happens on the other side of that? So on the other side of that, if I don't fix that, there's only one of three things that ends up happening. One, you tend to die alone and wondering Mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, you burn out Mm -hmm. and you leave the ministry and try to re-put your life together. Or three, and just as commonly, you end up in an affair. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you're so isolated and you're feeling so much stress that when a pretty young face comes and says, hey, I just want you to feel better. You know, I just want, you know, you to be happy. And she makes you feel joy. (laughs) Yeah. And you haven't felt real joy in a long time. It's almost irresistible. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I think so many pastors end up falling into this type of, uh, um, this particular part of sin because uh, they're joy starved. And uh, when they find joy, 
they they'll they'll literally trade their whole ministry for it. Right. That's why your 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 work has been so beneficial to us because it's reminded us to return to joy, to return to connection and belonging with the people that I love the most, not to manage people, but to be right. in relationship with people. You know, like not just to manage my worship team, but to be in relationship with my worship team, not right. just to manage my kids, but to be in relationship with them and and the joy work ha- is changing our community here and we're seeing leaders begin to walk very quickly very quickly from one stage of maturity to another one it is literally putting answers in blanks We know what a healthy body looks like. What does a healthy soul look like? We, we have a lot of millennials listening mm-hmm. to this right sure. now. And that there's, a, there's a sense of lostness, I think, in this idea. So, healthy soul. I use the analogy of a well. There's a, men, there's a lot of ministries that go and, and dig wells for poor communities that don't have good, fresh drinking water. And one of these uh, was going to a town in India to dig a well for them and found out they already had a well. So, they had a little meeting. Do we reclaim this well or do we dig a new one? And what they decided was, okay, uh, let's reclaim the well that they got. So they started, and literally what had happened when the well stopped being of use, it became the town dump. Mm. So they found trash in there. They literally found broken toilet in there. Uh, They got halfway down and found a cobra's nest. Wow. Yeah. Uh, True story. It's not going to (laughs) work. Nope. So they uh, got some specialists in, removed the cobras, finished cleaning it out, got to the bottom and found out that the foundation stones had collapsed and were clogging the spring. Hmm. And so they uh, reset the foundation stones, they pressure washed out the well, and uh, they punched through, and all of a sudden, the well filled up with nice, clean spring water for everybody to drink. And what had been the town eyesore and the town dump suddenly became a source of life to the whole community. Hmm. So I look at this and I think, all right, there's there's a real analogy here to the Christian life, and that is that a lot of us feel like that broken down well. We know the Holy Spirit's down in there somewhere. We know the life of God is in us somewhere, but it's all clogged up, doesn't seem to be able to flow. Why? You know, why, if the Holy Spirit is within me, is it just not seem to have a flow? Yeah. And it's generally because it's clogged, and usually that starts at the foundation. And the foundation is grace, and that is that if I don't have a foundation of grace that understands that God loves me on my worst day, Mm -hmm. that God is excited to be with me even when I fail because he knows that I'm that he's exactly who I need right then mm-hmm. right and the foundation of grace is what we build everything else on and when that happens the spirit can can fill our lives and when we as we learn to walk in the spirit and we learn to live out of grace and we learn to deal with the baggage that's been collecting then what happens is our soul gets healthy mm-hmm. and we become who we were made to be and we become life givers, and there's a joy in being a life giver. And so a healthy soul, right, is a soul that can give and receive love. Right. Right, so if I can give love, if I can receive God's love, then I can give that love to other people. Leadership comes down to how you treat weakness, starting with how you treat your own weakness. So how I treat my weakness, if I shame myself when I'm weak, then as a leader, I'm going to end up shaming my group when they're weak. If I get angry with myself when I'm weak, then I'm going to end up getting angry at my group when they're weak. 
if uh, weakness in me makes me scared, like everything's going to fall apart, this isn't going to work, my life's a mess, it'll never be better, then I'm going to communicate fear and lead with fear. If I'm depressed, like this is hopeless, I'm never going to get turned around, then hopelessness is going to drive what I'm doing as a leader. So it all comes down to how I deal with my own weakness. It's not that I'm going to get rid of my weakness, but I've got to learn how to be gentle and tender with the weakness, not excusing it, but creating a, uh, but affirming that it's there and recognizing that I need to do something to grow. Mm-hmm. And to continue to grow, and that's what I would want to do for those people. I would want to, as a leader, validate their weakness, say it's okay to be weak, but I don't want to enable your weakness so you can stay there for the rest of your life. We got to find some way where together we can help you grow. Together, where yeah. That's the key word, because too often it's kind of like the parent who says to the three-year-old, stop throwing a temper tantrum. You go to your room until you get some maturity. Mm-hmm. Like, that's never going to happen, right? What three-year-old's going to go to their room and teach themselves maturity? Right. Yeah. Right. It's got to be a, uh, uh, together, we're going to get through this. And so that's what uh, leaders are really good at. And if the leader isn't necessarily the one who's going to help them, what the leader will do is find somebody who can help them. Mm-hmm. But we're going to, the point is, we're not going to leave you alone in your weakness. We're not going to leave you alone with this problem. Man, this is all just so valuable to us in in the context we're in. And I, I just can't thank you enough for your work and your influence. And I just really appreciate your work, man. It's changing my life. Thanks. Right. Well, it's been a privilege. Man, I'm thankful for people who can coach us through that. Oh, man. Man, I, I just... It's changing our culture. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It really is changing yeah. our culture here um, in Kansas City. And in our trainings, particularly in track three of our learning community, this is where we sit. We talk about what it means to become healthy leaders who can sustain movements. Man, what was a big takeaway for you from that? Yeah, I think again, man, it was the being tender to your own weakness. Um, I'm probably like a lot of leaders out there who can be pretty internally critical and hard on myself. And it was just one more moment to remember that I need those foundation stones of grace to be set firmly in my life. The bit on king making blew my mind. He just put some language to something I think every leader has felt at some point. Mm -hmm. And as a young leader myself, I want to be on a path where I don't just have a lot of fans, but I have a lot of friends. Mm in leadership and he talked about vulnerability and knowing where the right place for that is. And yeah. It just was a really helpful note. Yeah. Interesting reflection on Jesus and the way that he did that in right. that part of the episode too, right? Yeah. Well, we want to give you some tips today on how you as a leader can return to joy yourself because it's actually a thing. Like our, yeah. our brain was actually created to turn back and come home to this emotional state and place of joy. And it is true that there are times when those powder cakes go off, that the lights in our brains can go off. Everything becomes about problem solving. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about a journey of coming home to becoming relational so that we can really live in that connectivity with other people around us. All right. So, Jack, give us that first point, man. The first step on returning to joy is actually gratitude. 
Mm-hmm. And there's some, some disciplines around gratitude. And we suggest one called interactive gratitude, which actually our next podcast will be all about. So you can wait for that. But go to Amazon and buy a book called The Joyful Journey, and that'll give you a jump start into gratitude. Yeah. Secondly, if you are a leader, you need good friends. Mm-hmm. If you have people in your life that you know are glad to be with you in your weakness, you need to log more time with them. If you don't have those people in your life, we suggest that you become that type of good friend. Mm-hmm. You know, a kind of a friend who walks into the room and looks at you and says, there you are. Yeah. A yeah. There you are kind of friend rather than a here I am mm-hmm. type of leader. Yeah. When we all find ourselves kind of going back and forth between those. So if you need friends, be that friend. Right on, man. And remember that you cannot have good friends without vulnerability. Yeah. When you find those friends, log time with them, become a relational person again. And I thought more about this a little bit. And I I wondered if there were any leaders out there, particularly on the counseling and therapeutic side of the fence, like some people who are listening who are maybe feeling for the first time or reminded again, I think I actually do have some deep internal work that I need Mm -hmm. to do. So the question would be, where can we go if we need to do some healing soul work to become a more healthy person and leader? So again, connect with trusted friends who like to be with you in whatever state you're in. And listen, if you don't have a counselor or a therapist, we simply suggest a Jesus therapist in your life. Now, look, that might be different than any old Christian therapist. We strongly suggest that you find someone who has a reputation for kindness and empathy. If you don't know where they are, ask the leaders in your life who are joy-filled and healthy who they go to, because the chances are they do know some people, because healthy people are people who do work to stay that way. When you get a few names of some of those therapists or counselors, go meet a few of them and interview them. And when you find one that you have some really good chemistry with, give at least 10 sessions to them because it typically takes about that kind of time, about that many sessions to make some real progress on the stuff that matters. So we are praying for you and we want you to be a healthy leader who can see sustainable movement in your life. And we want that for you. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Love and War Worship Podcast. The title music from these episodes is from John Shirley's album, The Desert Blooms. This episode's transitional music has been provided by MVRK. You can license music from MVRK at marmosetmusic.com. This episode's underscore music has been provided by Meaning Machine. You can license music from Meaning Machine at musicbed.com. To learn more about Love and War, go to loveandwarworship.org. Thanks so much for listening today. Thank you.